Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name is Nate Davison, and I am your host here at Grace Story Podcast. Thank you for joining us on this episode. One that, well, it's going to be hard. We like to talk about the hard things, the hard conversations. Um, and this one is just about as hard as it gets. It's a conversation you probably won't have but a handful of times in your life, hopefully. If you go over that, maybe you should write your own book on the topic. Uh, but this one, we have to go out and get an expert on end-of-life choices, end-of-life care. What does the Christ follower's path look like at the end of life? And especially from the context of medical decisions and prolonging life and suffering within that, there's just a whole lot to get to in that. So we brought in Dr. Catherine Butler. Before I bring her into the show, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about her, I do want to remind you, Men's Conference is coming up in May. It's our very first Grace Story Men's Conference. So make sure you go over to gracestoryministries.com to register or to see more information. Uh, while you're over there, go ahead and subscribe to the mailing list for updates on uh, ticket availability, speaker announcements, conference updates, uh, and, and much, much more. All right, I want to bring Dr. Catherine Butler in, but before I do, let me tell you about her. Uh, Dr. Butler trained in surgery and critical care at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, where she then joined the faculty. She left clinical practice in 2016 to homeschool her children and now writes regularly for DesiringGod.org and the Gospel Coalition on topics such as faith, medicine, shepherding kids, and the gospel. Uh, she is the author of Between Life and Death, a Gospel-Centered Guide to End-of-Life Medical Care, and she's on Grace Story Podcast. Dr. Butler, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Nate. It's a privilege to be here. Well, it's wonderful. We were chatting in the pre-show about uh, connections, uh, your time in the emergency department in the ICU, and my time in the emergency department. Uh, it is good to have a fellow healthcare worker on the show uh, but you also wrote a book about uh, what there's so much in it um, about, uh, you know, the end of life care, what the Christ followers should do through that um, uh, end of life choices. There's a lot there to get into. And you may not talk about it, but one time in your life. Yeah, well, I, I know that you know this terminology, but my background for listeners, I'm a trauma surgeon and a surgical intensivist, which is a fancy way of saying that my job was to take care of anything surgical that would come through the emergency room. So car accidents, stabbings, gunshot wounds, even something as simple as appendicitis, but that needed surgery urgently. And also uh, what I, I spent actually most of my time was in the surgical ICU. So people who had either had an operation or were dealing with something surgical that left them critically ill, meaning that they needed the support of a ventilator or medication to keep the blood pressure up, usually the sickest people in the hospital who needed the most support. And that was uh, an area that I loved in particular. And during the tail end of my clinical time, I actually spent most of my time in the intensive care unit because I just thought it was such a privilege to be able to come alongside patients and their families in their scariest moments, when they were really at, at risk of dying, when they were scared, uh, and to use this technology that God's given us as a gift to help bring people back home. And that to me was just so incredibly rewarding and a unique way to love neighbor. Um, but what I noticed over time, and what I'm sure you've witnessed in the ER too in different capacities, is that this technology that we have, which has this beautiful power to reunite families and to get people well when we use it with discernment, also has the potential to prolong dying and suffering when we use it at the end of life 
in people who are struggling with illnesses from which there's no hope of recovery. And what I saw time and again, which just broke my heart, was that we would pitch families into these agonizing situations when they were already grieving, when they were already scared about losing a loved one, of having to decide, do they take a loved one off the ventilator or not? Do they say yes or no to CPR? And for those of us who follow Christ, the appropriate thing and the instinctive thing is to lean into our faith and to try to say, what does the Bible teach me about this? But the problem is that the realities in the ICU are so far removed from everyday life and the technology and the terminology is so unfamiliar that I saw people time and again really struggle to connect the realities that they would you know, proclaim in church every Sunday with what they were seeing at the bedside and really falter to know what was God honoring and what was the right thing to do. And so I wrote uh, my first book, Between Life and Death, as a way to try to analyze what does the Bible actually say? What guidance does it give us? Because even though no ventilators are listed, (laughs) it does tell us and give us guidance about um, the meaning of life and death and suffering and God's work through it all. Uh, And also just to clearly explain in layman's terms what these technologies are, what their benefits are, but also what their limitations are to try to help give people some guidance and discernment when these horrible moments hit. Well, yeah, you talk about the the environment of the hospital, you know, for someone like me or you to walk in where we spend a lot of time in the, in the hospital itself, it's it's a whole different language at times. You can, as a layperson, sit at the bedside and be there for 10 minutes and not have a clue what anybody just said as the doctor and the nurse and, you know, the, the consults come in. And you're like, I don't even know. Is, was that a good thing that happened? What does negative mean? Their x-ray was negative and you're celebrating? Like, what? I don't, yeah. you know, it's everything's backwards, upside down. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and I don't know. Go ahead. I don't know if you experienced this when you went into nursing and were first learning the terminology. I got so frustrated during medical school with this rift between the terminology we use and learning this whole other language that I got, I got so mad. I actually took my anatomy textbook and threw it across the room one time (laughs) in med school. Cause I thought, how am I going to connect with my patients and shepherd them through these scary things? If I'm speaking words, they don't understand. So absolutely. No, I think we've all thrown a textbook or two (laughs) (laughs) nursing school or med school. If you haven't, you were going to, I I don't know if there is an easy one out there, but you, you also talk in, in your book about, um, the, 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 I don't, how people are more comfortable these days or uh, becoming more uh, uh, comfortable with going to hospitals to have their end of life experience. Um, Something like 20% of people may still have end of life at home. However, most will go into the hospital. That's insane. Right. So the numbers actually, because hospice hospice is becoming more and more Mm. accepted, the numbers have gotten a little bit better. Um, so about 40% of people now seek out hospice care, wow. which is wonderful. Yes. That, and that is a trend in the right direction. And that's an improvement from when I wrote the book just a few years ago. But there still is a huge rift. And, and if you take a look at a century ago, most people died at home. And so death was something that was familiar. It was something we all knew. And it occurred in the purview of daily life. Pastors would come and minister in the home. Loved ones would gather at the bedside. And it was something that everyone knew what it looked like, knew that it was a reality and could anticipate it eventually happening. And so I think it was easier for people to grasp and talk about death because it was so very clearly part of life. But now, although the majority of people 
in America, 80% still say they would like to die at home. The reality is that only about uh, 25% actually do. And it's usually within the setting of hospice. Um, the vast majority of people die in institutions. So within the hospital or within a nursing home and up to 25% of people over the age of 65 will die in an intensive care unit. And so what we see is that the realities of death, which are now very heavily medicalized and screened behind this whole array of technology that people don't understand are completely removed from everyday life. And so many of us aren't dealing with death until we're in a situation of either being uh, in a life-threatening situation ourselves or more commonly having to come alongside a loved one who can no longer speak for him or herself, mm. who's, who's dying or close to death. And then we have to make these gut-wrenching decisions without any prior knowledge or experience. So where do you, where do you think the balance is there then of individuals? Cause you know, I I've had some friends who are not uh, churchgoers and they're like, I feel like sometimes you Christians are just like way too fascinated with death and dying. <laughs> and like, it's all you ever talk about. And I'm like, well, you know, if you talk to Paul, he was pretty excited about living and dying both within, right. you know, the, the context of living with Christ. So like where, what is that balance maybe of becoming familiar with death uh, without being maybe macabre about it yeah. way, as a Christ follower. Yeah. You know, Matthew McCullough wrote a wonderful book about this just a few years ago called Remember Death. And his point was that as much as nobody wants to talk about it, and it's a really great way to shut down conversation at the dinner table, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but still it's important even as Christians, not only for the practical reasons of trying to love our families well and help prepare ourselves to make these decisions, but also from the standpoint of as Christians, as disciples of Christ, really grasping the hope of the gospel requires that we have a very upfront, pragmatic view of death and know that death is coming, but that thanks to Christ, he swallowed that death up in victory. And that while death is something that represents the wages of our sin and is inherently uh, intended to make us grieve, right? But we have a hope through Christ that transcends that. And, and that the very gift of the gospel is that while we might fear death, we don't need to be despondent about it because we know that when death comes, we'll be with Christ. And um, although you know we might live or die, I love Romans 8, 38 through 39. Because Paul says that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, nothing, not death included, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so the gospel transforms our view of death. And I think to really understand and appreciate what Christ has done, we need to be cognizant of the realities of our own death. Um, so while I don't think it's great you know, table conversation. If you invite someone over to your house for dinner, <laughs> I still think it's important like within our families that we just be open about it and acknowledge it. Uh, and that when loved ones are struggling through it, we talk with our kids about what's happening and we be open and we say, but this is why Jesus came <laughs> to liberate us from this. And while we were sad and it's appropriate to grieve, Jesus himself wept in the face of death, but that we need not be in despair. And there's a hope that we can cling to. Well, it makes sense to talk about these things too, before you get into the emotionally charged situations. Cause I know you mentioned in your book, the tensions uh, that can happen when you have, well, really Christ followers looking at the same scripture in different ways, looking at 
yeah. sanctity of life in different ways. And, and you mentioned one uh, a story in your book, an example of a, a, a mother or excuse me, a wife uh, at, with the husband after surgery. And she's mm-hmm. trying to get this tube out. Can you tell us more about that and what the son yes. said later? Sure. So when I was in the intensive care unit, I cared for a gentleman who had multiple, multiple uh, chronic diseases and their end stages. So really had run out of options for treatment. So he had chronic heart failure and he had emphysema and this whole long battery. And over the past six months before I even met him, his his ability to do the things that he loved and that sustained him with joy was incredibly diminished. So he couldn't even, he was a Christian and he couldn't even read the Bible anymore because he couldn't focus because he was on this battery of medications and he was so fatigued. And then he developed a cancer um, and he did not want it treated, but his family urged him. And so out of love for his family, he agreed to go ahead and have an operation to try to cure the cancer. But he made his wife promise him, if I need to go back on a ventilator, if I start to decline after I undergo this surgery, please say no. I've, I've, I'm at the end of my life. I've been on a ventilator before and he had found it intolerable. And he said, I just want the Lord to care, take me home when he calls. And so it was this real understanding of God's sovereignty over his days and this acceptance that death is something that comes to all of us, which is biblical and that God can work, knows the timing of our death and can work through it actually. Um, and so his wife honored that. So after his surgery, unfortunately he did decline. He developed a pneumonia and was struggling to breathe. And his wife was very clear and she was actually very at peace about it. They were in their eighties. They were quite elderly. And she just said, no, he doesn't want the tube. You know, he told me about this. He just wants to go home and be with the Lord. And so we had a discussion with his primary doctor and with his surgeon and everyone agreed that we would do what's called comfort measures. So it's, it's basically, we only focus on keeping a dying person comfortable. We don't do extra treatments. We don't do needles anymore. Uh, we even silence the monitor so they're peaceful and we focus on treating pain and treating air hunger and anxiety. And when I left that night, um, his wife was holding his hand and she was crying. Um, but I said, how are you doing? She's just like, I don't want to lose him, but I know that this is what he would choose. And I know he's going to be with the Lord soon. You know, so I left and she was very much at peace, even in her grief. Then in the middle of the night, um, their son from whom they'd been estranged for reasons that I don't know, uh, arrived in the hospital and was adamant that the staff put him back on a ventilator and made the accusation that we were killing him and not supporting him with a breathing machine. And he also drew from the Bible and Mm -hmm. said, my dad was a Bible believing Christian. He's gone to church every Sunday of his life. He would not be okay with this because God's not okay with killing. And I, and his wife was just, the wife was just beside herself with grief and just was sobbing when I came in. Um, and it to me just highlighted how confusing it can be for the layperson who's not used to the the limits and seeing you know, what this technology can do and when it can't help, and how how 
these ideas sometimes in the Bible can seem very at odds with each other. They're not when you look at the overall narrative of scripture. Uh, but if we cleave to just one of them without looking at the overall narrative arc of the Bible and what it teaches us about who we are and who God is and what he's done for us through Christ, it can get very confusing and I think worsen turmoil for families. Well, it goes to another concept you talk about in your book uh, uh, quite a bit is suffering. Perspectives on suffering, of course, are different. People you know, what my three-year-old considers suffering, you know, I may not consider suffering or some other human being um, suffering, and it's a part of life as well. But you're talking about, too, with these modern miracles of technology and medicine, we can we can have people, quote-unquote, live for quite a while mm-hmm. when yeah. they're never coming back. It's just not going to happen. Uh, we've done all of our brain core function tests, and we're like, they're, they're dead except they're breathing. Um, mm-hmm. so maybe walk us down that road as you're talking about suffering, uh, because you know, you have this person who's like, do everything, but he would want to mm-hmm. save life. This is life. But then yeah. when does it become cruel and you're just prolonging suffering? Absolutely. I think what's really critical for lay people to understand is that life support measures are supportive, not curative. So the job of a breathing machine is to support the lungs until we can fix what's causing the problem. So for example, if you have pneumonia that's causing your lungs to fail, we can put you on a breathing machine and give you antibiotics. And then once the antibiotics do their work, the infection gets cleared from the lungs. You can breathe better. You come off the ventilator. Same thing with something like heart failure, right? Where there's extra fluid in the lungs. We can give you diuretics and you may need a ventilator for a while to support your breathing while the medicines do their work to take that extra fluid off. And so in a lot of times, these measures can help and they can bring about complete recovery if the underlying issue is something we can cure. Uh, I think what happens sometimes is that we don't understand that. And so we think of a ventilator as something that is going to fix the patient. It's not. It's going to keep them alive and support them. But if we cannot fix the underlying issue, then that fixture is just going to keep the breathing going without any end recovery. And what we're doing is prolonging that dying process. So if someone, for instance, instead of something that's quickly reversible like pneumonia or like heart failure comes in with end-stage emphysema for which we have no further treatment to give, Uh, in addition to metastatic lung cancer and a fungal pneumonia, which is very hard to treat, (laughs) a ventilator in that scenario is going, not going to bring about cure and not going to bring somebody home. That person is dying because we have no way to treat that person and be able to fix their lungs and to put them on a ventilator is going to prolong that process. And in terms of suffering, I think people have a hard time comprehending why these technologies cause suffering. Um, I think it's important to recognize that CPR, which is necessary to save anybody who goes into cardiac arrest where their heart stops, is necessary, but it also breaks ribs in 90% of cases. And so if you survive one of those events, it will hurt every time you take a breath. If you don't have uh, a punctured lung from you know, right. a broken bone as well. And need a chest tube, right, right exactly. And then People who actually, when they've done studies looking at people who've survived an ICU stay, it's staggering and troubling. The rates of post-traumatic stress disorder 
are comparable after an ICU stay to that suffered by soldiers who fought in the Iraq war. And it, and it comes from the fact that you're completely incapacitated. And when you have the, the, you know this, but I'm explaining this for listeners. Absolutely. When you have a breathing tube in place, it's very irritating. You know, it's like taking a hose and sticking it down your throat. Oh, and yeah. so they blow up a balloon in there to keep it from coming out and everything. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so you cough and it makes your eyes tear and your first instinct is to pull it out. So to prevent you from pulling it out, Tighten we down. will strap your arms to the bed and we give you a sedative. And so what happens over and over again for patients in the ICU, their last memory may be of them being intubated when they were fighting to breathe and scared. And then they'll wake up strapped to a bed, not know where they are, feel something in their throat, try to reach it out and find out that they're tied down, try to call for help and they can't speak because something's in their throat, look around and then they see that there are all these lines connected to them and there's a tube in their private parts to collect their urine. And then they start to panic and they start to try to fight. And then the nurse gives medication to sedate them and they fall asleep. And then it happens again over and over and over again. So people will struggle with nightmares afterwards just from having been in the ICU. And and the key thing is if we can get you home, then it's worth it. But for someone who's at the end of life, who's struggling with an ailment or a disease that we can't fix, then this starts to look a lot like cruelty. Mm. And and as um, those who are called to love neighbor as ourselves and you know, as, as Christians were convicted to do, as it says in Micah, to, um, to walk humbly and love mercy and, and just to care for the downtrodden and afflicted and to love others as Christ loved us, it matters that we have concern for the suffering we inflict. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, you, you nailed it perfectly. Actually, you, you're really just the tip of the iceberg there when it comes to suffering, because there's also purposely bringing, bringing people out of sedation to check delirium status. And right. if you are delirious, you have such confusion and fear. And then yep. daily lab draws make sure we're oxygenating correctly. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the list goes mm-hmm. on and on. And heaven forbid we get into feeding tubes and things like that. Um, oh, gosh. And trachs and, and yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the, that balance there of uh, the suffering and making sure we're not prolonging it. It, it really makes me want to have people talk more about this before we get to those points because it's not guaranteed that this is going to be something you're going to be talking to somebody about when they're 80. Uh, absolutely. It could certainly absolutely. happen just tomorrow, uh, heaven forbid. Yep. yep, absolutely, Nate. You, you hit the nail on the head. And as uncomfortable as these conversations can be, they're vital. Uh, because just as you say, 75% of people cannot communicate at the end of life. So it's, it's very natural, I think, for everyone to say, well, I'll, I'll decide when I get there, yeah. <laughs> you know, like when I, when I have to deal with it, I'll let you know. But the vast majority of us, either because the illness itself leaves us attended, so our thinking is not clear, mm-hmm. or because we need a ventilator and we actually can't speak, or because of the medications that we receive in an effort to try to save us, all of that often takes away our ability to communicate what we would want. And so as much as we don't want to think about it, if we don't think about it and don't discuss this with our loved ones ahead of time, we're putting them into just a a gut-wrenching situation of having to make decisions on our behalf without any guidance, Uh, which is why, just as you say, it's so critical to talk about this ahead of time. And I would encourage everyone to have an advanced directive in place that outlines 
your wishes ahead of time so that loved ones know what you would want. Well, with detail too, because a lot of those DNRs are just check boxes of preset stuff. If you have very specific wishes, you need to write that out, go through it, um, get it certified and all that good stuff. But also you're putting this on individuals uh, who may be looking at you in a bed and it's hard for the layperson to tell, okay, is this something they're going to recover from or is this something they're going to die from? Because it it looks the same. Like if you were playing a game of mix and match, those two might look really, really similar. Mm -hmm. Um, And you in your book give four biblical principles to help guide Christ followers as they're making these decisions early or having the conversations early, or if they're in the unfortunate position of making these decisions in real time. Could you walk us through those four principles and and maybe the backup for those? Sure, sure. So like I said, I I think we run into difficulty and run into the conflicts, like I mentioned with this wife and son earlier, uh, when we just cling to one idea from the Bible without looking at it as a whole. And when you look at scripture and what it teaches us, there are four principles that I think can help guide us that um, should all be considered at once. <laughs> and and then the first is the most obvious, which is that mortal life is sacred, that um, God made us in his image, and therefore each of us has irrevocable, irrevocable dignity and value, that um, when we look to Moses on Mount Sinai, that life is something that we're to protect, that goes back to the Ten Commandments, that we're not to kill, This is the idea that compels us to be advocates for the unborn and to lobby against uh, physician-assisted suicide, which is not biblical. And I want to make very clear when we're having this discussion, it's not. Um, So this is very clear. And what that principle guides us to do is to pursue treatments if there is a hope for recovery. And sometimes this will be very apparent. Sometimes it'll be a little cloudy. But the idea is if there is the potential for cure, if there's a potential for somebody to be able to come off these machines and come home, that's something to consider accepting, okay? The other principle, which seems to be in tension with this, but is, is really not, is that uh, the inevitability of, the, the, the mandate to protect life doesn't refute the fact that death will come to all of us and that God is sovereign over it. Meaning that this side of the fall, until Jesus comes, Death will come to all of us. It's the wages of our sin. And so when we push against the reality that death comes to all of us, we actually deny the beauty of the gospel and the fact that we need not fear death with everything. Um, we read from Psalms that our times are in God's hands, that he knows every hair on our head and he's already numbered out our days. Uh, and he can work through our death also, even for his glory, mm-hmm. um, which we see, I think, about John 11, when Jesus allows Lazarus to die, to go and raise him and bring others to himself. Even through our death, he has the power um, to do good. And and so while uh, it's important that we accept treatments or consider accepting treatments with the power to cure, it doesn't mean that we have to also seek out every intervention when death is inevitable and at hand and that death is going to come to all of us and we should accept it. The third principle is what you were talking about earlier, which is that as Christians, we have concern for suffering. And you mentioned for your daughter, what is suffering for one person is not for another. And I think this principle is really important for those cases where the outcome might not be full recovery or death, but it's in the middle. 
which is very, very common, as I'm sure you've seen, which is, okay, maybe you have partial recovery, but at a huge cost in terms of the suffering that we inflict with our treatment. Or perhaps it's partial recovery but profound disability. And is that something that your loved one would be open and accepting to? And in a way, I think this is actually a very beautiful way to love neighbor because when we think about suffering, it requires us to think about what who our loved one is and what are the things that make life rich and whole. And if they're a Christian, how is it that he or she has been able to live out the gospel and know God and love God and serve him? And knowing that the answer is going to be different for everyone, I think it helps us to focus on our loved ones as unique image bearers. Mm and to honor them uh, potentially in their last days in a way that really focuses on who is this person and how can I love them well. Um, And then the last, which I've alluded to throughout, which I think really brings all of it into perspective is that our hope is in Christ. That even though death is something that's harrowing, that Jesus transforms death into something that's not to be feared at all costs, but to something that he has redeemed for us because we know that when we die, we will be with him and we have life in Christ. And it's not, it's an ending, but it is not the end for us. Um, And so I think that helps us to, to view these things with a greater peace than perhaps we would have if we weren't keeping Christ and the cross in view. Well, sure. Cause I mean, I can look at those and, I think about 50-50 in the secular realm, people would be like, yeah, human life is valuable. That's why I became a nurse or a doctor. I want to help save lives. Uh, and then suffering, yeah, I, that's why I became a doctor. And I want to help people not suffer. Um, however, the authority of God on our timeline, the mm-hmm. hope we have in, in the gospel, and in, in even as we go through death, there is life hereafter. Those things, those concepts are not wrapped up in your secular uh, bring the chaplain to the bedside because even in that, sometimes you have to be careful about what you say to people. You have to ask them first in the hospital setting. Again, another reason not to be there, uh, but what is your belief system and how can I be assistance to Mm -hmm. you in your belief setting? And it's like still a very sterile, uh, even when you're talking about religion in the hospital setting. Uh, man, there's a lot there for that. When when you have people, if maybe they don't want to talk about this, your family, like your your mom or whoever, like they're that person you're thinking of that you go up to and they're like, well, yeah, I can see the value in talking about it, but you know, today it's sunny. We're really going to ruin a sunny day <laughs> or the yeah. next day. It's raining. It's too sad of a day to talk about it. There's never going to be a good time to talk about this. Like what, right. what advice would you give to somebody who's like, yeah. I want to find out their, what they want before right. we hit this, uh, this milestone. Right. I think, I, I think it's very common, unfortunately, is that we try and people might resist a couple tacks I might take. One would be to on, to emphasize, um, that you're doing it because you want to honor what they would want mm. and that your goal is to know ahead of time to make sure that you can, up, uphold their wishes when they can no longer speak for themselves. I think that often can help open the conversation. Some people will still say, "Oh, just do everything," you know? <laughs> and and if Until that's the case, until you see everything, and yeah, and if that's the case, you know, you can follow up and say, "Well, you know what? I I I know that's what you want, but let's just think about this a little bit and maybe bring up some of these situations that are not so clear." I find that if there are family members 
who have gone through death and dying in the past, you can actually bring up those experiences, which can be a help because someone might say, Oh, do everything. It's like, Oh, okay. Well, like when, when aunt Jean had her chemo for those six months and then, you know, was in and out of the hospital, is that what you would want? You know? And, and just, just oftentimes people will make these blanket statements and they're not really thinking about the realities of it carefully. So pulling from family members' experiences and asking about it. Another way, if there's still resistance, is to be very honest and say, listen, I am anxious about making these decisions and I know I'm going to have to, so can you please help me? <laughs> can you please give me some guidance? So if they won't for themselves <laughs> to say, please help equip me, you know, as your daughter, as your son, as your husband, please help give me guidance so that I know what to do so that I'm not grieving because I'm sure you've seen this, but uh, they making these decisions is associated afterwards with um, depression within a year afterwards with complicated grief where people are stuck in their grief and they don't progress through the normal pattern of resolution and healing. And even with PTSD, um, for up to a year afterwards. So after a loved one dies in the ICU, it's associated with all of this aftermath for loved ones. That's very psychologically disabling. But if loved ones have conversations ahead of time, the, the incidence of those troubles decreases. So there's very, very real evidence for having these conversations ahead of time to try to lift the burden on our loved ones. So you can offer that. If you, if loved ones really still are, are resistant, you can still at least try to think about what choices they've made in their own lives regarding healthcare and who they are and what kind of suffering you've seen has been too much and what their values are. Um, and that's often what we wind up having to do when loved ones haven't had discussions with us is to try to think about who are they, what, how have they weathered past hospitalizations before? Um, have they done well and wanted to fight through everything or have they said, I hate this, I need to get home, do you know? And, and just maybe it's something that you haven't been able to talk with them about upfront although I encourage everyone to do so, but thinking about who they are and the kinds of experiences they've had in the past can sometimes shed a bit of light um, from which we can glean a bit of, of solace as we're making these decisions. Well, and if you are the listener listening in and you realize that you are that person that's maybe getting it up a little bit more experience in life, and you're like, yeah, I, I've never had that conversation. Maybe you can think of it through that lens of, hey, I can relieve my significant other, my kids of the what ifs the big load of I made that decision and maybe they would still be alive if I had only um, and give them a definite relief of I did what they wanted. And regardless of the outcome, that's what they wanted. That's something you can, that's a beautiful gift that you can give someone, but it's going to be hard. It really is going to be hard. A sidebar, because we've talked about it and we've, we've talked about the sanctity of life and kind of the way Christians, Christ followers go through end of life decisions. In your experience, are the the Christ followers more compassionate when it comes to the suffering of end of life? Are we more aggressive of doing more things? Like it seems like we would be the ones like I uh, will see him in the great by and by, right? Or yeah. is that different? Yeah. 
we are actually much more aggressive and there's actually studies to back that up showing it. So it's okay. not even just my impression. Um, <laughs> there have been uh, research studies looking at the degree of religious coping, meaning how much do you rely upon church family and going to church and study the Bible to help you cope with things. And there is a direct correlation between religious coping and dying in the ICU and aggressive measures at the end of life. We are much more apt, I think, because we tend to view the mandate to protect life, which is a God-given one. We misinterpret it to mean do everything at all costs. And they're not the same thing. And so I think we tend to neglect the fact that, yes, death will come to all of us. And Christ has overcome death, so we need not fear it. And we need to have concern for suffering. I think we tend to ignore those sometimes. And we tend to take this view of, because I'm called to protect life, that means do everything. But everything will not necessarily bring someone home. <laughs> and it's just important to accept that reality and say, okay, when is, when is this actually hurting rather than helping? Yeah, and that's a hard thing to, I mean, that's why you need the doctors. And, and a lot of times, let's mention the reality of that. A lot of times you're walking into this situation and meeting a doctor for the first time who's going to help you walk through these end-of-life decisions. All the more reason to have had these conversations prior to so you can walk up to them with confidence and say, this is what they want. I right. know it's and, what and they it, want. And it goes the other way too, not as often, but I have seen cases, and I write about this in the book, where someone instead has said, well, I just want God to take me when he's going to take me, so I'm not going to accept anything. Mm. Yeah. And I had a very harrowing and upsetting case as a medical student where a woman... Uh, said that. And she had something that was reversible. Her mm. lungs were filling with fluid because she needed to go on dialysis. And the dialysis would have cured the problem. And she would have gotten the fluid off her lungs and come off the ventilator. But she had told her family, I don't want ever to be on a ventilator. And so she wound up passing away. And that was a very upsetting uh, and emotionally tumultuous experience because uh, I don't think she understood that, we, you know, part of, of protecting life is realizing that God's given us this technology as a gift to steward well. And sometimes, yes, it will not help, but other times it will. And so if, if recovery is possible, we shouldn't balk unless we're going to really inflict suffering that's undue. Um, so it's just important to be nuanced about it and, and to make sure we're not being dogmatic in either way, but really looking at all these principles. And just as you said, when you come to the bedside of somebody in the ICU, it is impossible as a layperson to see if this is someone who's on the brink of recovery or someone, someone who's actively dying because they're all going to be connected to a ventilator. They're going to have an, a big tree with all sorts of drips and it requires talking with a doctor about what is it that's threatening my loved one's life? Is it something that's recoverable? What are the chances for recovery? What is life going to look like afterwards if they get home? All of these things uh, to really unpack, okay, are we preserving life through these things or are we prolonging death and suffering? So it's important not to be dogmatic and to really be thoughtful and discerning and ask questions of doctors about what's occurring. Well, and it would mean so much uh, from a healthcare worker perspective because I know we, more than people know, we take this stuff home. We mm -hmm. talk about, you know, without breaking HIPAA, of course, we talk through these scenarios with our loved ones or significant other or a therapist. And like, mm -hmm. hey, this was a decision made and there was nothing I could do about it. Or if they would have just known this was reversible or, 
you know, I had to prolong and we're the ones doing some, some of that suffering infliction. And we know what we think we could do better. But then at the end of the day, we're an advocate for the wishes of the patient. So -hmm. if you could come in listener with a plan or Mm -hmm. a, a, a list of great questions of starting with, is this reversible? Man, Mm -hmm. oh, it would go such a long way to the healthcare worker's heart Uh, Mm because we have a lot of head knowledge and a lot of experience of understanding when things can and probably won't go the right way of what you're wishing. A miracle. You're hoping for a miracle. It's an outlier. Yep. Wow. Yep. Uh, Yep. I often, and you mentioned miracles too. Um, I've had loved ones say to me, you know, we have to keep things going because I'm praying for a miracle. And, and God does answer prayer. Absolutely. And God is capable of miracles, but he doesn't need a ventilator to perform a miracle, you know, and, and it's really hard, I think, for loved ones to grasp that. Um, and it's important to pray, but if he's going to perform a miracle, he doesn't need our help to do it. And so the key thing is still to look and say is, are we really going to be able with our technology to help this person or not? And I pray the Lord does you know, perform a miracle, but it's not a reason to keep someone on technology if we're inflicting suffering. It's not going to help. Absolutely. So. I feel like there's so much more we could ask. This is not one of those topics that's, you know, 45 <laughs> minutes done. Uh, so that's all the more reason for people to go out and, and get the book here. Uh, that's by Dr. Catherine Butler. It's Between Life and Death, A Gospel-Centered Guide to End-of-Life Medical Care. And before I ask you one more question, I do want to give you an opportunity to uh, tell people where they can find out more about you and maybe what some of the stuff you're working on coming up that we can look forward to. Sure. Um, one thing I wanted to, can I say one thing about yeah. advanced directives too? Yes, please, please go for <laughs> Before it. I get to me, I, I wanted to say too, because we keep saying about having these conversations, there are resources to help uh, with this. When we talk about advanced directives, those are documents to try to help with these decisions. Um, Nate mentioned, you mentioned a, a DNR, DNI form. It's also called a medical order for life-sustaining treatment. That is a checkbox form that I honestly would not recommend unless you are on hospice or have some other end of life diagnosis. That is basically a checkbox so that if a paramedic comes, if 911's called and they find you in cardiac arrest, they'd say, okay, I'm not going to do anything. The reality is most of us are going to be in situations that are much more complicated. What is helpful is to have a living will. So a living will gives prompts and allows you to include a narrative of when it would be okay for you to have technology and when not. So you can include some of this language that represents your faith and say, I believe that, you know, because I'm a Christian, I am called to protect life when possible, but also accept that death is inevitable. And so I would be willing to accept a ventilator if doctors think that I'm struggling with an ailment that is potentially reversible. You can include that language in there to help guide family members. Um, Five Wishes is a site that offers uh, a lot of these documents and helps guide you through it. It's secular, I will say, but the prompts can be helpful. Uh, All the states also have their own forms that you can pull and uh, fill out. And it requires usually that you have a loved one witness it with you. The other thing that I would do is to appoint an official healthcare proxy or um, power of attorney for healthcare. And what that person is, is an official designee that acts on your behalf 
if you cannot speak for yourself, which again will happen to most of us at some point. And it's important to appoint someone ahead of time and to discuss this with that person because as you've seen, I'm sure, there are conflicts that will happen between family members, you know, where maybe there's somebody who's been estranged, who hasn't seen how your loved one has been struggling. And so they'll come out of the woodwork and object to whatever decisions are being made. And it's so it's really important to have one person that will be your designated voice uh, and, and to try to eliminate any ambiguity and then talk to them about what your wishes are. Did you have anything more to add about that, Nate, that I no. might have missed? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you came back on that because yeah. that really brings it up to a full circle of, okay, I have an actionable item instead of just walking into, hey, kids, we're going to talk about death today. Uh, no, you know, you have, yeah. <laughs> you have some resources. <laughs> hey, this is, I filled this out. Will you read through it with me and, you know, yeah. see what I want? Um, and then it becomes something maybe they can take and come back to. Um, it becomes a process. Uh, right. So, and then that following question, where can we find out more about you and, and what do you have on the horizon uh, sure. that you're working on? Sure. So the Lord's been, the Lord's taken me on a kind of circuitous path. <laughs> it's been unusual. Um, so you can find out about me. I have a website that's a blog that I update every so often. It's it's Catherine Butler, K-T-H-R-Y-N Butler, B-U-T-L-E-R.com. And that has links to my articles and my books, um, my publisher webpage also, I'm published by Crossway. So if you go to crossway.org and look for my name under authors, you can see my most recent work. Um, I've been on a, a journey since COVID. Uh, I went back to work briefly during COVID. And my son was seven at the time and he was old enough to understand the gravity of the situation. And he was really scared. And his wrestling with uh, what it meant and worry for me getting sick and everything else. And I'm, I feel silly saying this cause you've been in the thick of it through the whole thing, but it was scary for him um, to have me go back. And it turned up a lot of ideas or a lot of concerns about God's goodness uh, in the face of calamity like this. And at the time we had been reading the Lord of the Rings and in addition to going through Job and all the hard work of trying to guide him through a theology of suffering, we read the passage in Return of the King where Minas Tirith is under siege and the writers of Rohan come sweeping to their rescue. And Tolkien has this beautiful, almost um, Revelation-esque language where he talks about a wind coming off of the sea and dawn breaking. And it's, it reminded me so much of Jesus returning. And so I started to cry. And we, that sparked a whole conversation with him. And it, well, it might sound like a tangent, but what it did was it crystallized in my mind how really well-told stories can help bring gospel themes to life for our kids, sure. yes. even hard ones. And so I started to write a children's series. Okay. <laughs> it's a fantasy series called The Dreamkeeper Saga. The uh, first two books came out last year. The third comes out next month. And I just finished writing the fourth and it's a five book series. Wow. <laughs> so if anyone wants something different, not talking about <laughs> death, <laughs> I will tell you, I was of life care that's was, out there too. I wasn't expecting that, uh, that turn there. Most, uh, most people are not including my publisher. <laughs> <laughs> we went from advanced directives to a children's series and uh, I know, <laughs> but but that's 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 beautiful because uh, once you read through through the book that is very well written, very easy to read uh, on end of life medical care, 
Um, and then understand your backstory and the reason for that. That honestly makes me want to go out and get the series, uh, especially when it's oh, new right. and, and interesting. And boy, my my uh, my girl, she's seven years old, learning how to read. Well, has learned how to read in the first grade and can't get enough stuff to read now. So, oh, great! <laughs> we'll put that link in the show notes for people to be able to go look at. Uh, there is one more question. I, I one more question, rather. I like to ask people, uh, our guest, as we're coming to a close here. If there's something you would like to leave our listener with as you speak directly to the listener, um, someone who maybe um, they, they wish that they had heard you sooner or they, they're like, man, I hear you, but I'm never going to have these conversations or just maybe a Christ follower just dealing with the existential stuff of end of life and death. And man, this seems like a lot. It's overwhelming to those who are listening in and they're like, I have no idea because I was actually going to shut this off halfway through because, man, it's a lot. For those listeners from uh, from Catherine, what, what would it be? Oh, I would just pray for your solace knowing that His grace is sufficient and that in these moments when it all feels so heavy uh, and we might not feel like we can carry the burden, um, I think of Matthew 11, where he says that, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He bore all of this for us on the cross, and he continues to walk with us through our suffering. And when we are, feel like we are finite and limited and can't carry it all, He's still with us and carries that burden for us. And that no matter what decisions we're facing, what decisions we've made, where we're feeling stricken with guilt, just that in him there's forgiveness and there's grace and in him there's healing. Um, So I would just encourage everyone, even when your heart bends and breaks, to know that his love for you endures and that his grace is sufficient. I love that. And you're not alone. I love that. Mm -hmm. In these moments, it seems like all the advice in the world just goes out the window. Words yep. break down and squeak. And you just, yep. nothing yep. seems to help. Um, and if you're in that moment, you know, sometimes the best thing is people just to be with, be with you. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Butler, for coming on Great Story Podcast, sharing your expertise, sharing your time, um, and helping us through thinking through some of these overwhelming thoughts today. Well, thank you so much for having me and for the conversation and blessings to you. And to you, the listener, thank you so much for joining in on the conversation and listening. If you're listening on Apple Podcast on that app, go ahead and give us a follow, tap a five-star rating and drop a review. If you're listening on Spotify, give us a follow there and hit that notification bell so you never miss an episode. Like I say every time, there is no us without you. So continue on your journey of restoration. Get engaged, and we'll see you in two weeks for a new episode. Until then, we'll be praying for you.